Hey, welcome to Night School, an early mobile episode, probably the earliest that I've done a mobile episode. It's 7.30 a.m., about 7.30, and we're walking in the fog, and I'm trying to put my glove back on. There we go. Got my glove back on. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm reading the, uh, well, if you didn't know, I get up early. I get up very early now. Did you know I get up early? Uh, I also read. I love how, you know, we like to signal the things we do. The things we're proud of. We like to signal to other people, I do this thing. You know, I do this thing. Did you know that I read? I feel like lately that's what these episodes are like. You know, I did my book report episode. It's so cold. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to be so cold. You know, this early in the year or this late in the year, depending on how you you see it. October second. I feel like it's so cold. My lips can barely move, and it's not even winter yet. So if I slur or sound weird, weird weirder than normal, that is why. Uh, but. Yeah, in the Booker Four episode and just some different episodes lately, I feel like I'm basically saying, I read. Did you know why you read? And, it, you know, you always are going to run that risk when you talk about something you're doing. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's just my insane self-consciousness, you know, reducing me to, you know, basically just paralyzing me yet again. But I'm reading the Silmarillion, the Tolkien book, published after his death. And uh, it's a dense, slow burn of a read, if you're not already aware. Uh, it's a real chore to get through, but I appreciate what he was going for. I appreciate that level of, you know, uh, self-induced autistic mythology. Especially because it was, you know, largely unprecedented. You know, now it's expected for fantasy authors or really authors of any kind to have this deep, you know, internal world that they've fleshed out, including a cosmological creation myth to go behind the massive engrossing epic story as if that wasn't enough. You got to also have some sort of cosmological creation myth. And so I appreciate that Tolkien was... You know, he, he was an iconoclast, and I have a lot of respect for him. And I appreciate that, you know, he did make an attempt to do that, whether he actually intended for the Silmarillion to be, pub to be publicly available or not, I don't know. But just even the fact that he fleshed out those writings and that world privately, uh, you know, says a lot about him, especially when that was extremely uncommon. I, I mean, there might be some precedent for it, uh, but given how, you know, relatively recent the development of, you know, printing and books and all of that is in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like there really would have been very many authors who did that, and certainly not authors in the context of fantasy. Uh, but it is, it is a chore, it is a real struggle to read through as someone who likes Lord of the Rings and you know, appreciates that world and appreciates a good world builder, which Tolkien, you know, was again 
really one of the first to really go that far with it. Uh, it is still very, it's difficult to get through and it's, it's like a Bible of sorts, you know, where you have all of this genealogy, all of this, you know, this overwrought explanation of geography and the different names that these, ge it's not, it's not just one thing to come up with all these different names for ge geographical locations in this fantasy world you've made up, but then you have to have like different names for the same locations because you're explaining the history of those locations over different ages of time. And, and that's a whole other level of, you know, self-induced autism that Tolkien was able to tap into. And, uh, you know, and I say that, you know, lightly. I feel like everything I hear today is just autism, autism, autism. And you hear tons of people who are not autistic or not on the spectrum who are like, well, I'm kind of autistic. And I feel like I'm guilty of doing that. Maybe not. I don't, you know, I don't refer to myself as autistic. Not even jokingly. All other kinds of crazy, all other kinds of things, but not that. But it is, a, you know, one of those words that you just hear all the time now. But I think someone who creates a completely immersive internal fantasy world that goes, you know, even deeper than this, you know, publicly available uh, creative fantasy world and, you know, published over several books, I think... That does invoke, you know, some level of something. <laughs> Not necessarily autism, but something. And, uh, but, you know, in Tolkien, if you've, if you've ever seen his letters, if you've read his letters, heard his comments and in interviews, you know, he's a very self-aware guy. He was a very self-aware man. Uh, very, uh... I feel like he understood what he was doing pretty well, even though he was going down a path that nobody else really had gone down up to that point. And as a side note, I have to say, I respect that he didn't allow the Beatles to do a Lord of the Rings movie. I, I believe in the, might've been in the seventies. I don't remember when exactly. Uh, the Beatles wanted to do their own animated Lord of the Rings movie, a la Yellow S Submarine probably something along those lines visually and they were going to do the music for it and he didn't allow it to happen and from what I've learned he actually hated the Beatles hated what they represented and there was a letter I saw that he wrote to someone complaining about his neighbors because when he had moved into his house I believe he lived in a pretty secluded little area and then as the neighborhood around him developed uh, one of the one of his neighbors started a rock band and I think he referred to them as being something along the lines uh, uh, Something similar to the Beatles in his mind at least and he hated it hated the noise hated rock and roll. I Like that. It's you know, maybe a, a generational thing But I like that Tolkien wasn't too hip Wasn't too cool. He just you know, he didn't want that noise grating on him as he imagined elven languages, which, again, that's just part of the, the difficulty in reading this book. And I don't mean difficulty as in it's difficult reading. The level of reading isn't particularly difficult to me, but just 
you know, I, you know, it's hard not to roll my eyes at all these elven words that are vaguely similar. And as much as I respect that sort of self-created language, what it takes to do that, I'm not someone who's like, oh, these beautiful elven words. Oh my goodness. But one thing I like is that, you know, in the beginning of the story, in the initial the initial creation of his little universe. Uh, there are these essentially demigods playing music. And his approach to music, Tolkien's approach to music is, it's kind of innocent, but also perverse. And you see this too in the books, in the, in the actual Lord of the Rings trilogy, where there are all the elven songs and the Tom Bombadil songs, uh, all of that. And it kind of has this airy, like, you know, the elven thing naturally lends itself to, like, the word ferical. Uh, but there's this very, like, light and wispy take on music where it's just, it's so pure and natural and it represents the, the, un, uh, the untainted beauty of creatures and and nature and life but there's also something kind of perverse about it at least to me i don't know how exactly to explain that but it's not just simply innocent there's something a little you know not sexually perverse but just perverse is the word i want to use so i'm going to use it i think the way that he indulges it the way that he indulges in these like little you know written songs and the way that Lord of the Rings continually comes back to this essence of music. Uh, but in the beginning of the Silmarillion, he talks about how these demigods were basically, they were created by, a, you know, an essential creator, essentially God himself. And these demigods, which I think he calls like the Vanyar, and that's, that's like the thing about that book is, you know, there, it's not just that there are these kind of obtuse words that he created in his own language. It's that like there are like five things that have like one letter difference, you know. So there's like five words that mean different things, vaguely related to one another, that have like one ends in an R, one ends in an A, but they all have like the same root word. So it's like very difficult to even follow along you know, just using the words, unless you're going to be like one of these nerds that just like writes that shit down as you're reading it. But these demigods, they start out playing music. And so essentially the universe begins with these demigods just playing music uh, before this conductor that is God. And then one of them, who's the most, you know, the most... Uh, I think he describes him as, you know, the most skilled uh, of these demigods. Starts playing his own music and, and a little louder. He essentially starts, you know, going to the beat of his own drummer. And he starts drowning out the other demigods who are playing their music. And this, of course, is Melkor, a.k.a. Morgoth, who's, who's basically the manifestation of evil. The earliest incarnation of evil in the Middle-earth universe is this, this demigod who starts drowning out the other demigod musicians with his own music. 
and it basically sets off it sets forth the path to you know a lot of a lot of things get created as a result of it but it basically disrupts this initial harmony and you know i joke around about hating music <laughs> But it's not totally a joke because, you know, I, I would say I can't stand a far greater amount of music than the music I can stand. And there does end up being some sort of balance because the music that I love does have more weight than the music that I hate. But there is a lot, you know, a greater mass of music that I just can't stand. And it's funny in that way because I'm not alone in this where... You know, when you hear music you like, you love it, or you just, you like it enough to listen to it. But when you hear music you hate, it is, uh, you, you cannot be around it. It brings out something deeply visceral. You cannot stand being around music that you hate, being subjected to it. And one of the few things like that is also comedy, humor. Not, not, not necessarily like the genre or like the the entertainment, uh, like stand-up comedy or anything like that, or comedic movies, but just even the idea of jokes themselves, where if someone, you know, makes a joke and you know they're trying to make a joke, but you don't find it funny, it's almost as if you take personal offense to it, you know, where it's not just enough to be like, uh, oh, uh, you know, that's not funny and that's okay because it's just not my sense of humor. When someone makes a joke and we don't find it funny, we almost want to... <laughs> you almost want to kill that person. You know, not really, but you, you, just, you feel personally offended. Like, they did something to you. And, it's, and, you know, even if you know that it's like there's a certain level of wit, if you don't like their joke, you get mad. And even if you have a good control over your reactions, even if you're a well-balanced person who doesn't want to strangle someone for making a joke you don't like, there's still some part of you that has to, like, contend with that. You have to, you know, show some level of self-control to not throw something at them. And music is very much the same way, where, you know, when we're exposed to music that we don't like or we that grates on us, it's like we want to like react. We, we have this visceral reaction. And maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but I don't feel that way about movies. I don't feel that way about visual art. And I, I'm not someone who really cares about movies. I don't watch them very often. I grew up watching a lot of them. Hence why I, all my movie point of references are really dated. It's not me being like, oh, remember Back to the Future? Remember Transformers, the animated movie? You know, it's not even, it's not me trying to be nostalgic about it. It's just literally that my point of references drop off at a certain point for movies. Because I just, I'm not invested in film. I, I just, movies aren't, aren't something that I really care about that much. Uh, so I don't react that way to movies. You know, I don't, I don't get offended if I don't like a movie or anything like that. You know, but if I find it boring, I'll be like, ah, this is boring, this sucks, I don't want to watch it. But it's a much different reaction than my reaction to music, or for that matter, humor. But music in particular stands out to me. And, 
you know, I don't feel that way about TV either. I'd put movies and TV in the same category, and movies and TV are heading in the same direction where, you know, a lot of the shows that people find popular now, the people are into, like the HBO series, all of those things, are much more like movies drawn out over you know, an entire season. So TV has become more like movies. To me, they're, they're the same thing. You know, even if there's a difference in, in the way they're made and in the, in the execution of them, TV and movies are basically the same thing. Uh, but if I don't like them, I just think, oh, I don't want to watch this. And I kind of let it go. And people are, in my experience, mostly the same way about TV and movies where they might be like, don't go see that, it sucks. Oh, that, that movie sucks. But very rarely did they, is it this like visceral reaction that like, you know, they carry with them. And very rarely are they like, hey, let's kill the director. You know, and there are exceptions. There are times where like people are very disappointed, especially if a movie is part of a, uh, a series like Star Wars. You know, of course, people... Many people, I think, have fantasized about hurting George Lucas, and they've been very disappointed in Star Wars and other sequels and things of that nature. People do get upset if they have some sort of expectation because because a prior movie was really good or a movie was based on a book that they liked. But those are largely the exceptions, and, you know, people will... Uh, people will give movies just kind of a pass if they don't like them. It's just kind of like, oh, I don't want to watch that again. I left the theater. The worst thing they could do is leave the theater. But it just doesn't seem to be something that people are quite as passionate about. And maybe that's just my own, you know, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe people are much more severe about movies than I realize. It's just that I don't care about them, so I don't really talk to those people or notice it as much. But then there's other things like visual art, like paintings and drawings, fine art as some call it. I've never really been able to understand that term, fine art. I don't really know where the fine comes from, what what it's referring to. I just genuinely don't. Uh, But anyway, uh, you know, with fine art, like I'm a visual artist. It's like since I was a little kid, I've, I've been very into drawing you know, of all the creative, you know, mediums or whatever that I use, uh, the mainstay throughout my life has been visual art. I would say at this point, it's not as much a priority for me as it is just kind of like a basic handrail that I just, I, I don't know, not a handrail, but it's just, it's just kind of this thing that's there. And it, but it's important to me and I take a certain level of pride in it. Uh, but that said, like, I don't get pissed off at visual art, you know, if, even if I don't like it. I don't necessarily want it to define me. Like, I don't want certain art to be hanging in my home, and I wouldn't want certain art to represent me. Like, I don't want to wear a t-shirt that looks like something I'd hate. I mean, sometimes I'll look at, like, some, like, craft beer label and be like, God, I hate that art. I hate what they're going for, but it doesn't stay with me. I don't have, I wouldn't call it a visceral visceral reaction by any means. It's just sort of like, oh, I don't like the way that looks. And despite being someone who's pretty invested in my own visual art and who, you know, deeply loves certain visual art from other people, 
I just don't have that negative of a reaction to art I don't like. Uh, but the same is not true of music and, to some extent, you know, humor. But music seems to be the big one. Music seems to... Even the music I like, you know, bothers me now. <laughs> you know? Uh, like, because that's the thing, too, is, you know, you can really make yourself hate even the music you love. And then you revisit it later, and it's kind of refreshed, and you like it again. But it's one of those things, though, where there's just something that brings out this just nastiness in people. And you see it in the cultures, too, that they're a part of. These little groups. You know, these little... Uh, you know, subgroups, whatever the hell they are, and uh, it, it just it, you end you end up like with just this kind of toxic nastiness and these opinions, and this isn't just some small you know micro phenomena. You see it play out all over the place. You even see it play out in the mainstream. You know, it, it's it's not just one place or another. But I feel like. You know, in, in 2019, music has really jumped the shark. You know, and this is a... I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it clear. This is a scientific statement. This is coming from a well-researched, objective, scientific analysis of music. And music in 2019 has jumped the shark. All musicians in 2019 are Melkor, a.k.a. Morgoth, the Tolkien demigod who is disrupting the harmony of the other musical demigods and thus creating the manifestation of pure evil through his ego and his desire to be the loudest violin in the symphony. It does sort of feel that way to me. And I, you know, and, I, and you could say, oh, you know, if you're listening to this, you could say, oh, this guy's bitter. This guy's so jaded and bitter. He just... He, he has these crazy views on, on music. He says, he says music as a whole has jumped the fucking shark. And I'll stand by that. I'll stand by that. Music in 2019, and it may have jumped the shark earlier, and I'm just late. I'm a latecomer. It may have jumped the shark 200 years ago, but I wasn't alive then. Uh, music in 2019 has jumped the shark. Music in 2019 is all Melkor. It's all Morgoth. It's, uh, it's all disruptive. And even when it's good, even when I love it, even the stuff that I, I've loved from my past, even the new stuff I come across, it's, it's all Melkor. It's all Morgoth. Uh, it's all, uh, it's all unacceptable. <laughs> and I don't know why I feel, you know, obviously there's a, Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit, uh, but I it, it, I do have this sense of that, and uh, I feel more often than not, like hearing any music at all is disruptive, and it's not the Tolkien Elven language of purity, you know, that he perversely writes about, and you know and even then it's perverse though you know in the same sense that i feel like tolkien's references to music are somewhat perverse for whatever reason i feel like music as a whole has become perverse and i don't mean this to be like some sort of uh, 10 commandment where it's like thou shalt not make music thou shalt not listen to music 
Although, interestingly, you do see that. As much as, you know, music has this holy connotation, this pure connotation, and even the church, you know, has its gospel music, its choirs, you also see, you know, where music is lumped in with the different sensory indulgences, like in Buddhism, for example, you know, one, you know, among the different uh, uh, sensory attachments that you're that a monk in certain uh, in, in certain practices are told to let go of one of them is music uh, it, you know in the same way they're told to let go of you know most foods most you know sex all these different things music is one of those things that is actually discouraged in certain monastic practices and uh, it's it's not limited to Buddhism either. It's actually you actually see it in some various beliefs, and that's interesting. And I don't think it I don't think it necessarily plays into the fact that in 2019 music has jumped the shark. I don't think it necessarily. I, I don't I don't think that you know these ancient Buddhists were like you know oh it's the year. Uh, who even knows what year that was? I don't think these ancient people were like, oh, music has jumped the shark, but maybe. You know, I did say that I'm late to the game. Maybe I'm really fucking late. Maybe I'm really late to the game. And music did jump the shark, you know, from the beginning. And apparently it did in Tolkien's creation myth, too. Because in Tolkien's own creation myth in the Silmarillion, did you know I read? Did you know that I read books? Did you know that I read, you know unenjoyable, self-induced, autistic, cosmological <laughs> elf books. Uh, but, uh, you know, even in uh, Tolkien's own creation myth, music jumps the shark instantly. Like, right away. I mean, that's in, the I think, the very first page of the Silmarillion when it's talking about these demigods who are playing music in in the void before the creation of middle earth before the creation of anything except them and the creator himself music jumps the shark like instantly in the story like melkor starts doing his fucking crazy thing like right away and that creates all the problems it, cre it creates some beautiful things too as as the book itself says you know after some like horrible war between the elves and the evil entities you know, it led to greater songs because it's only through, because, you know, uh, it's only through these tragic events that, you know, you know, these tragic events are remembered through music is essentially what it says. So through evil, there is good because it led to the creation of these songs. Even though music isn't good and it jumped the shark, you know, we wouldn't have these, these beautiful elven songs if not for evil bringing out the need to express that sorrow uh which is a good idea you know i, th I think that's worth thinking about because one thing i also like in the silmarillion is uh uh how he talks about like when when things are good during the ages of good where the sun is shining where the sun has been created and the sun is shining and evil morgoth is hiding and the orcs are deep down underground, hiding from the sunlight. You know how during the ages where things are actually good, there's not much to write about. You know, not much. He, 
Tolkien says not much is documented from those periods because things were good. And there's, there's just not much to write about when things are good. And I like that idea. I'm glad that he said that in there. Because it's kind of the truth. It's what I've said before about when you're seeing something beautiful or participating in something beautiful, there isn't this need to, to mention it. There isn't a need to be like, oh, uh, isn't that beautiful? You're like seeing some like miracle of nature and there's no need to say, isn't that beautiful? Don't you just think that's beautiful? I mean, some people do that. And sometimes it's worth mentioning the good things, sure. But still, there's less of a need to comment when something is grand or beautiful, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people would agree. And there's less to document, too. And sometimes that means less songs, you know? In the same way that Tolkien talks about you know, the creation of these beautiful songs came from bad things. It came from battles, from evil. You know, that, that alone says something about music, that music is the product of evil. It says it right there. No. But, uh, you know, there is this need, like, when something is negative, to comment on it. And it makes for more interesting stories, too. It's not just commenting and being, you know, when something sucks, you feel the need to be like, this sucks. Whereas, uh, when something's beautiful, you feel less of a need to do that. And that leads to a lot of our negativity biases where, you know, someone who's a, a, an entertainer of some kind, you know, always notices the negative feedback they receive, or anybody for that matter. You don't have to be a performer, but just anybody for that matter is always much more acutely aware of negative feedback. And part of that's because of the negativity bias. It's, the, you know, the one person in the crowd with a frown on their face is going to catch your eye, you know, much more than the hundred people with smiles on their faces. It's just something about the way we are wired, where we see this and we're like, oh, someone doesn't like it. And that person stands out. You know, the five people who didn't like it stand out in our brain way more than the hundred people who do. Just kind of something, just things just kind of work that way. So... You know, negati negativity bias kind of plays into this as well, where it's not just that we feel the need to comment more or document things more when they're bad. It's also that we notice those things more. And those two things play into each other, you know, very intensely. The fact that we notice those things more and those are, th those are the things that are way more likely to be vocalized uh, they just play into each other and they sometimes give us this cloud of negativity where we're we're just like oh you know and that that makes us you know as people more negative when we think that you know i don't know it, when we're exposed to more negativity that way it makes us feel more negative even if there's a certain amount of bias or distortion behind it and often there is uh but uh I don't know what to say about music, you know, <laughs> even though I've been saying a lot here. I don't know what to say about where it's headed, but I, I do feel in 2019 that the, the nature of music in our lives is different than it was. And again, I may be late to the game. I may be late to the game, but music has certainly gotten easier to make. Uh, in some ways, you know, you could say, oh, someone just picking up... Uh, 
a stringed instrument in the Middle Ages, like, you know, seems pretty easy to me. How is that any different than someone making beats on their cell phone? Is it really different? I don't know. Is someone playing the harp in a, in a tower in the 1500s truly any different than someone like pressing a button and having an auto-generated beat play on their phone while they say the same word over and over again on top of it? I don't know. You know, I'm, I, it's, it's sort of like that when a tree falls in the forest question where it's a good question, but all the answers suck. There's no good answer to that question, you know, As, which is true of a lot of philosophical, quote unquote, philosophical questions. It's like the questions themselves are great, but the answers all suck. So let's not think about them. It's like, do, do people have a soul? How about we don't answer that? How about we don't think about that? How about we don't waste our time thinking about that? Uh, let's think instead about how music has no value in 2019. No, that's not true. Uh, I think, you know, it absolutely does. And I, I think that music does... It is an important part of the power-up process. You know, self-empowerment. Uh, where you do need to hear certain melodies, certain rhythms... Uh, certain words. I mean, I don't need to go into detail about why music is valuable. Uh, but, but I do think we've sort of... I think music has become very loaded. And... I, I think that our... I think, the, I think the way that we see musicians is uh, unrealistic, for one. Because I, I think that more musicians than not become Melkor. They become Morgoth. And not because they're prima donnas, not because they're egotistical. You know, that's too easy. That's too easy to see. But I think, you know, the very act of making music can be more an act of destruction than creation. I think often it can become more of a, a, a disruptor. More of a... A chore, you know, in the same way that reading this Silmarillion is a chore, maybe. I think just, you know, having to endure music everywhere you go has become something of a chore that you just have to, like, mentally push through. And you can't go into a store without it just playing over the speakers. You can't, you know, watch anything without music flooding in. You really can't go very far without being subjected to music in some way. And as, you know, we live in a world of more and more musicians and more and more people who think they're musicians. And I have no standard, you know, by which to judge whether someone's a musician or not. Uh, but, uh, you know, we live in an age where more and more people are subjecting each other, not simply to music, but to music of their own creation. And they think about that as if it's some sort of gift. Like, I'm giving you this gift of something I created and it just goes back to that idea of, you know, uh, you know, is creating sometimes more destructive than it is truly creative? Does music, you know, in some way offset the natural balance that would otherwise be there? Are the birds to blame? Should we start blaming birds? And for that matter, are birds actually making music? Are birds actually singing? 
That's another one of those philosophical philosophical questions. And if you tr- if, if you try to answer that, uh, rethink your life. But uh, rethink your life. Uh, but uh, <laughs> all of this boils down to the question: Are birds actually singing? Are birds Melkor? Are birds Morgoth? Are birds the manifestation of pure evil through their perverse songs? No, no. I'm not going to blame birds. But I am going to blame music. Music in 2019 is the manifestation of pure evil. And you should treat it You know, in the same way that I had to put my glove on at the beginning of this episode, I think you should treat all music, uh, you should hold all music with gloved hands and be very careful of it. Children.